Welcome to Career in Ruins, where this week we're wrapping up blinking you missed it i know it's it's amazing we got here and it's 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 been a bit a good season as well we've we've had we've had some good episodes well we don't talk of... too quickly it's not the end of the season yet it's just <laughs> the end of the year oh we've got some to come in 2024 yeah yeah <laughs> that's exciting i can't wait it's going to be a good 2024 i think it's uh building on a, a fun year should we should we look back over the year have some career and ruins highlights yeah i mean obviously the, the highlight of the year is career and ruins coming back no well yeah of course i'm Obviously, but I'm, that's highlights <laughs> for everyone else. What about for us? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, it, I mean, the whole year has been a highlight for me. There's been too many, too many great successes from personal triumphs to uh, to career highlights as well. That sounds like the answer to a question I definitely didn't prep you for. <laughs> well, no, I, just, I don't want to sound too gloaty, you know. Um, oh. I'm feeling very privileged. I'm feeling very lucky. <laughs> and, um, You've worked very hard. This year. You've become a doctor this year. Mm-hmm. So I'm a doctor this year. I managed to get married this year, and got married, been yeah. working on some fantastic projects from the South Pacific to um, some of Britain's finest forests. And if I if I edit quickly and edit efficiently, and this podcast goes out broadly on time, where where are you in the world? Oh well, yeah. I'm wishing everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the Dominican Republic. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had a good year. <laughs> it's been all right. How about you? How's your reflections? Yeah, it's been a it's been a cracking year. I would like work's work's been work, but been going well. Um, I've, I, we've had a lovely time team year this year. We've had some ups mm. and downs though. We had the 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 floods in Greece getting trapped out there. That was a a, a challenge. Um, I'm still sending all my thoughts to friends out there who, um, despite it being months later, are still without homes, living living in various various other places other people's houses we've got some dear friends living in 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 our dig flat at the moment um so wishing them the best and a happy new year and a hopefully a happier 2024 um going forwards but it's it's been a good year overall i think yeah absolutely and 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 in, and the archaeology the archaeology this is easy for me to say the archaeology machine continues to um pump out some incredible research some incredible individuals some incredible um community projects and it's just been a delight to watch everything unfold across the news across social medias and and some really fantastic discoveries and some really fantastic individuals involved Mm, it's been a yeah good 2023 has been a good year for archaeology generally i think that's right that's right so in terms of 2023 then what who have we got seeing us seeing us through uh through the time portal window what, how, what am i trying <laughs> what to say are you talking well, about? <laughs> who, who's seeing us out who's seeing us out of the of rounding, <laughs> rounding out 2023 as i say providing i get my arse and gear and edit the podcast we've got outstanding yeah. well you're committed <laughs> now and you have to include this so if you don't do it everyone will know <laughs> i know i know i'm a yeah i'm giving myself a, a making a rod from my own back here but um in this last episode of 2023 released within 2023 hopefully um we are joined 
by the incredible Colm Donnelly, who is a senior research fellow at Queen's University in Belfast and has an incredible career track record, um, including but not limited to um, research into historical archaeology and community archaeology. Welcome, Colm. Welcome to the podcast today. Hello. How are you doing, lads? Yeah, good. It's an absolute pleasure to to have you you with us this evening, Colin. And I'm trying to work out the last time we might have seen each other's each other's faces. I think it would have been 2007. I think it was 2007 during the excavation at uh, St Elizabeth's Church. That's correct. I yeah, yeah. Belfast, and you were over. Um, you were over from Bournemouth um, on a placement, and you were so good. We kept you on because the excavation went on beyond the training excavation for the students. We were, had to stay on the site for an extra month, I think. And we kept you for beyond the four weeks of the excavation. You were so good. Colm, are you saying that you are responsible for making Lawrence the archaeologist I see before me? I Well, I did my little bit. I think I'd say it played a huge role in my career progressions in that in that ability of of putting faith into my abilities and, and allowing me to put another month of experience on my CV and um, and working with and learning from some incredible in, individuals and it was an absolute treat and a, and a, a light a light bulb moment in my uh, sort of understanding of my career trajectories in, in as a as a lowly undergraduate who was about to go into his third year and try and scrape a two two so um yeah i appreciated the the, uh, the support and the interest at the time colin <laughs> but that's enough about me um what we're okay. here to do is to um yeah to hear about your career marines obviously we've got a, a pretty typical format for the podcast and that kicks off with asking our participants to tell us how they got to where they are today okay um i well i suppose i i grew up on um the north coast in northern ireland um near a place called Ballycastle, uh on a small farm and um the only thing i really had any interest in when i was a kid was history um, not just like the Romans and the Egyptians and all that sort of stuff, but the, the history of the area that I grew up in. Um, the medieval period, for example, you had the McDonald's from Ailey uh, came across around about 1500, established themselves in, in the glens of Antrim. So I was very interested in them, um, the sites that were associated with them, places like Dundas Castle, and Kamban Castle and Bonamargie. Uh, but I was also interested in uh, family history and local history and, and the history associated with the farming community that I'd grown up in. And I had, you know, neighbours and relatives, uh, my father's two cousins, Charlie and Eddie Donnelly, Claude Gore, were a big influence on me. And I would take a huge interest in the families, the history of the families, the history of the land holdings, uh, the folk traditions, the customs, all of this sort of stuff, all the way through. Um, and I was not a particularly good student at school. Um, I had no real interest in any other subject, maybe a bit of English, but by and large, the only thing I had any interest in was history. And somehow, managed to sort of claw my way through and get uh, into to Queen's to do history and archaeology. 
Um, and whenever that happened, the world changed for me. Because now I was able to just do history and archaeology. And I, I had that, you know, that um, epiphany moment where I realized you actually can combine the two. And it was very much the work of um, one of my lecturers, Tom McNeil, um, who emphasized that to me, showed that because of the work he had done on the stone castles on the North Antrim coast. So you could see him taking the cartographic evidence and the documentary evidence and the physical architectural evidence and even the excavated evidence and combining all of that there to produce a narrative for these castles. So that was basically what I then decided to do. Um, I concentrated on archaeology, dropped history, concentrated on archaeology, but very much with a view to being a historical archaeologist. Did my undergraduate degree, and then I moved on to starting a PhD. And my PhD was on tower houses. I have to be very careful how to say that because with my accent, it comes across as tower houses, and you think some sort of <laughs> complex, but it's tower houses, small castles, and in particular these medieval small castles in County Limerick. So I went and surveyed. All of these castles that still survive in County Limerick and built up the story of these castles. Uh, and that was my PhD. What, what, sorry, Colin, what time period are those? those Medieval. They're Medieval. Sort of, they're, 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 you have this proliferation of small castles being built in Ireland in and around the period from about 1400 through to about 1550. Huge number of them, possibly 2000 being constructed mainly in the southern half of the island. But the 14th century is a really bad time in Ireland. You've got the, the Bruce invasion, you have the Great European Famine, you have the Black Death. It's a bad time. When you come into the 15th century, things evidently improve. And uh, there's this view that sort of trotted out, you know, that the med medieval Ireland is this land of war. Uh, and it's like all oh, like Game of Thrones. Well, you know, it's not really. It's actually probably the most stable period in the history of Ireland over the last thousand years. And we can see that with the, the building industry. There's this proliferation of building and you have this development of our, our own uh, Irish Gothic style of architecture. And you have all these castles being built. But you don't build castles if you're living in a war zone. You build castles when you've got resources from your farming. That's when you build castles. You invest for the future. We see this other places like the borders in Scotland. It's the same thing. It's whenever you've got you know, peace, stability, that's when you build. And these things become status symbols. Right? When I'm talking to the students about it, I always say it's sort of like you know, the 1960s and 1970s, the bungalowization that occurred in Ireland here where there was this wholesale abandonment of the old traditional Irish thatched cottages and people started building these bungalows and some of them could be like Spanish villas, you know, out in the middle of like the, the countryside. <laughs> Change occurred. And that's something that happens in, in, the, in the, the 1400s in Ireland. So they've got a short life span, really 200, maybe 250 years, um, because they in turn then are replaced by the big country houses in the, the late 17th, 18th century. So you've got these buildings which are, be, are used for about 200, 250 years, 
uh, then are abandoned, but not really given that much attention, really. Um, there was, you know, maybe someone like um, Harold Leask in the 1940s includes a section on them in his book on Irish castles. But by and large, it was you know, Terry Barry and Tom McNeil were the people that were taking an interest in, and uh, the late uh, David Sweetman. They were the ones that were taking an interest in these uh, tower houses. And because I was Tom McNeil's student um, and because I had an interest in them, then I was sent out to, to do my, my, my research and my study of the tower houses. Following that, I then worked in the Institute of Irish Studies for a year uh, researching historic monuments in Northern Ireland, which formed a book called Living Places. Uh, it was published in 1997. Did some work uh, with my, my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, uh, Eileen Murphy, who's the professor of archaeology here at Queen's. Uh, Eileen was doing her PhD at the time. She was working on uh, Scythians from a place called Mirlig uh, in Russia. Uh, and they were stored in the Kunstkammer Museum in St. Petersburg. So I went out as her field assistant and spent about six months out there working with her and that. Came back, got a job working for a community group down in Fermanagh, a, a wonderful uh, lady, uh, Margaret Gallagher, who was my boss at that time. Uh, and it was restoring a corn mill to full work and order. It's called Molly Cobble. Uh, and it was during this time I was always digging. I was always working on excavations, filling in between the gaps with, with excavation. So I always would view myself as a field archaeologist. Uh, I'm very proud of that. And um, then this job came up in Queens. So that's 24 years ago. The job came up in Queens mm. for a project officer, which then evolved into the, the, the role that I have today, which is more mainstream in you know, teaching the undergraduate training excavation that module and I'll do historic Ireland and I've got my undergraduate dissertations and I've got my PhD students. I also ran a field unit, uh, the Centre for Archaeological Field Work, which would have been the unit you worked with whenever you were over thus, Lawrence. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Yeah, the CAF. The CAF, um, it's gone now. We changed, we we, we did, we, we put it to, to sleep and then we brought brought forward a new organization um, to replace it, which was the Centre for Community Archaeology. Because increasingly, more and more, uh, the work we were doing, as we got into about 2015, 2017, around that period, more and more of the work we were doing was community-based. And that's really uh, where I'm at at the moment, is working with Eileen still, uh, on the, the two of us, the co-directors of the Centre for Community Archaeology at Queen's. So... That's sort of a, a potted history of where I've come from. That's a fantastically interesting career. And there's, there's a couple of things I, I'm, I'm desperate to pick up on in there. Um, so sorry, Lawrence, I'm going to steal steal the, the conversation for a minute or two. Um, something something that a few of our guests have mentioned in the last, in this series particularly, I've noticed, and it's something that resonates with me as well, is the, the not being a particularly good student in school and then finding this thing that you love and discovering a passion that never really goes away and when we've been fortunate enough to find a, a career in this area is that something you see given that you you've spent a 
good part of the last 25 years working with the kind of undergraduate training. Is that a theme you see repeated in students throughout? Yeah. Uh, they're not, they don't come in you know, one identity cat. Hmm. What you get is you've got students who come in with really good uh, A-levels, hmm. A-levels, first-class A-level results, and they come into the university and they're sort of lost. Hmm. Uh, they, they don't really get to grips with the fact that you're it's up to you to go and do the work. No one's going to tell you what to do. It's up to you to do it. And they can end up, and I've seen it, they can end up with a 2-2. Mm. There are other students who come in and they're just basically solid as a rock and they, you know, they may have come from, just like myself, getting in and no more, maybe through clearance. They get in and they just are solid as a rock and they're attending their classes and they're really interested. And you see them coming out with high two ones or mm. firsts. Likewise with the excavation, some of the students who are maybe not quite as academically inclined, you know, the, the book learning stuff, you put them into the field and you give them a trial and they become fantastic villages mm. and they go on and they, be, they have their career in field archaeology. So, yeah, you get a mixed bag of people coming um, to, to, the, to the, the courses. Mm, I'm quite quite envious of that. It's something I, I used to spend a lot of time with our first year training dig and seeing that transition and that impact of suddenly being out in the field and mm -hmm. folks falling in love with the, the practical side of archaeology is is it's yeah one of the highlights of the job um and yeah i yeah such a such a positive thing to see I, i'm also a little bit intrigued by your work in russia because I, I don't get to talk to that many people who've worked in russia i did a few seasons oh russia here we go back in the day <laughs> <laughs> um, i wasn't digging in russia i was uh, in the lab yeah yeah i was I, sitting I, in the lab because eileen was doing an osteoarchaeological uh, thousand Scythian warriors and wow iron age steplands of russia my job was basically sitting there listening to the bbc world service <laughs> sheets and doing measurements for her um from usually we started at nine o'clock in the morning we finished it at six o'clock and that maybe the six days a week because we had to try and clear this as six thousand or, or one thousand skeletons mm shorter period of time as we possibly could. So I didn't actually get out that much. I got to uh, Novgorod. Mm. on a day trip to Novgorod to look at the, the medieval architecture there. But by and large, it was, you know, spent more time in the, the subway going out to Stadium, Prospect, Prospeshenia and the, on the outskirts of the city you know, coming in and out on the, the train. So Eileen has... It, you picked the wrong one. <laughs> you, should have, you should have got That's 2024 any. sorted. Yeah, That's I was going to say. If you want Russia and you want all the, the, the digs that, the, you know, she's doing out there digging in, in Russia and that, you need to talk to her. Uh, that sounds, sounds like a definite 2024 goal to me um also great I, I'm, again brilliant that you've been to novgorod it's uh it's a site i've heard very much about because one of my dear colleagues and, and mentors um professor mark brisbane um and mark maltby actually both had an excavation project at novgorod um and have always spoken 
tremendously of their experiences there um so yeah what while jealousy you've been out to have a look at the place um but the, thank you for that it, it's 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 oh all right lawrence you can talk now no well, well, well uh, just following on from the, the line of questions so what i quite like about um listening to your career column is that i think and i don't think i'm i'm overlooking too many of our past episodes but i think we've had a lot of prehistorians <laughs> on career and ruins to date and that they are a lot of very good field archaeologists but a lot of people that will focus on prehistory and um i think you're probably our first pure history and archaeology professional to come on and chat to us and i'd love to perhaps if you'd be happy to if it's not too much for us pick out um the difference between his, his history and archaeology versus prehistory prehistory and archaeology and for, for our listeners more than anything to understand the tools perhaps you might use and the fact that you can be a bit more perhaps factual as opposed to the prehistorians that you're basically making it up on the fly <laughs> yeah i mean uh, i don't want to be insulting to, to prehistorians uh, <laughs> you know um, the, the way I look at it is I find prehistory to be quite um, frustrating. I was on many, you know, whenever I was a student out there, I was on many prehistoric excavations, worked with uh, Jim Mallory, um, our professor, uh, and Jim was doing excavations at places like uh, Donny Gore and Poppy Sport, one Neolithic camp, uh, Causeway Enclosure, the other um, a Bronze Age Hillford. Um, so I was on those types of excavations, Derek Simpson's excavation at Valley Galley, where he was excavating Neolithic houses, or the foundations for them. But I suppose the problem with it is, if you're coming from, from a historical background, you're more familiar with people and named people, uh, both individually named people and groups of people, you know. Um, when you go into prehistory, you don't have that. And I find it actually a bit frustrating that you're just calling people after the types of pottery they use. You know, the bigger people um, comes to mind. It's that sort of lack of definition that I don't really like. I I, I do have, you know, I, I, I'm interested in the, uh, the Neolithic. I like the Neolithic. I like the idea of the first farmers. I like the idea of them coming along. These big houses that they're constructing, the monumental architecture that they they engaged in. Uh, Barry Hartwell and his excavations, my colleague Barry Hartwell, uh, again, when I was, was an undergraduate, Barry was doing work at um, Ballynahatty, the Giant's Ring, and he'd say Belfast. He's just published the, the results of, of that, uh, that study. So the sites are great and the field work is great and all that there, but it's not really me. You know, I'm. I'm more into the fact that you can actually go and look at the documentation, be it newspapers or government reports, or in the case of the medieval period, going and looking at your know, praise poems that are written about individuals, and, and you've got the chronologies and you've got the people. It's not, a, uh, you know, we did a site, Eileen and myself, um, we worked on a site for the, North, the National Roads Authority um, in the Republic of Ireland in County Donegal. It was during one of the road schemes. There had been uh, 1,265 uh, skeletons discovered at a place called Ballyhanna. And I was basically, I was brought in to, to do the historical uh, context for the study of these skeletons. 
Now, what set them apart was the fact that you've got a really big assemblage there of basically medieval um, peasants from a Gaelic part of the country, not an Anglo-Irish part of the country, from a Gaelic part of the country. And it gave fantastic insight into what life was like for these people who um, weren't being included in, you know, the, the annals, and the, the accounts of the great and the good. These were the ordinary folk who were just getting on with their lives. Um, and they're not mentioned, and we've got the historical rec records in the medieval period, but they don't mention the ordinary folk. It's all the, the hierarchy, the aristocracy. And, you know, Ireland at this time, both the Anglo-Irish areas and the, 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 the Gaelic areas, it's very hierarchical. So in some ways, that was almost like prehistory. You know, that was almost like prehistory, using relying on the, the bones, Eileen's analysis of the bones, to tell us what was life like for these people who don't feature in the, um, the narratives, you know? Don't know if that answers your question, but um, it gives you sort of an insight into the sort of activities that, that I'm engaged in. Oh, it's a fan, it's a fantastic answer, and uh, yeah, a, a, adding that flavour of the those hidden stories is is one of the things archaeology does best, isn't it? It's mm. uh, it's yeah, a, a perfect complement to the wider historical narratives that are that are much more well documented. Colm, Colm, you've you've had a, an an incredible array of um, projects and activities in your career, and you've mentioned some of them to us already. But um, as you know, we have a few set questions on the podcast. Yes. And if you, if you had to, to pick one that you're particularly proud of, um, it's like choosing a favourite child, I know. But uh, if you had to pick one um, that you sort of carry with you as this is this is this is the project for me, um, which one would it be and, and why? That's a really difficult question. Um, I'm not going to give you one. I'll give you three. Okay. Deal, deal. <laughs> it seems short. It's, uh, seems um, fair. Seems fair. <laughs> I think one of them, well, Dungano uh, in uh, 2007, I think it was, we did a time team investigation in Dungano, um up on Castle Hill, which was known to have been the location of the Tarhouse Castle of the O'Neillers. And the O'Neills were the, the great lineage in uh, the medieval period in Ulster. The, you know, the O'Donnells would probably uh, counter that and say that they were the biggest, but actually, really, was the O'Neills. Um, and we knew that there was a castle somewhere up in that hilltop. Uh, and we did the excavation. And I was really, really proud of the fact that we came down right on top of the foundations of the O'Neill Castle. So that's one that I'm very proud of. I remember that time team episode after it came out. So I think I, I can't remember whether it was a rerun after I'd been with you guys or it was uh, it come out after I'd been with. You. I was like, "Let's call him! Let's call him!" There was some magic going on there. I'll tell you. I'm not really. I'll, I'll to, to fill in the story here. That hilltop uh, during the uh, the troubles uh, that had become a military compound up on top of this hilltop overlooking the town. And the British Army were there, and the police were there, and they had this great big helicopter landing platform 
And the area where we reckoned where the, the tower house was located, the castle was located, was sort of underneath the helicopter landing pad that the British Army had put in. So we laid out the trench of where we're going to excavate on this concrete and started to, to get the JCB to start cutting the concrete. The concrete turned out to be about two metres thick. They, they, they <laughs> put the material onto it, I'm telling you, the highest, no helicopter was going to be damaged in that one. <laughs> it was a huge raft of concrete with iron on it, and we just couldn't get anywhere. Could get no traction at all. So we thought, oh, God, you know, the cameras are rolling here. It's day one. What are we going to do? We moved the trench slightly over to an area where there was termite, and we excavated that, and we came down right on top of the tower house. <laughs> so if we had managed to get through the concrete, if we had got through that concrete, we wouldn't have actually hit the tower house. Uh. <laughs> it was actually under the, the termite. So that was definite forces at work. <laughs> Blimey. Blimey. So what was two and three then, Colin? So uh, two, uh, Lowell, Massachusetts. The excavations we did in uh, 2010, 2012 out in Massachusetts, uh, which as far as I'm aware is the only time anyone, any archaeologist from Ireland has actually gone out to the United States and um, carried out an excavation. Um, Lowell's an industrial town. Uh, it's pretty, by our standards, it's pretty new. It was established in 1821, taking the, the water power from the Merrimack River Big industrial complex, lots of textile factories being set up. If you're going to have textile factories and you're going to have water to run them, you need to have canals. So you need people to dig the canals. And uh, you had this, um, the entrepreneurs employed a guy called uh, Hugh Comiskey, who was from County Tyrone here in, in Ulster. And Hugh Comiskey and his brother and his neighbours you had a bit of chain migration going on here. They went out to Boston. They were engaged in these sort of projects. They went down to Lowell. They dug the canals. They stayed in Lowell. And they had a camp. And that camp then started to develop into like a town on the fringe of the main uh, industrial town. Got called the Acre. And um, we went and did an excavation uh, with the Centre for Irish Partnerships at uh, University of Massachusetts, Lowell campus. Uh, a group of us went out and did an excavation, three seasons of excavation uh, on the site of that camp. And I think it actually, it was really important stuff. And it was important for a couple of reasons. One, for the local community, for the Irish American community in Lowell, because the Irish community in Lowell is still there. And um, it meant a lot to them. And we made a lot of friends in that community. The second thing from more of a, I suppose, from an archaeological perspective, historical archaeological perspective, mostly when people talk about the Irish Americans, there's this sort of notion that it's something that is tied into the Great Famine and the fact that you have all these people leaving Ireland in the 1840s, 1850s, going to America. And that sort of is the, the starting point for the Irish Americans. And it's not really, the starting point for the Irish Americans really is in the 18th century with the, the Scots-Irish Presbyterians who go across 
And then in the early 19th century, or yeah, in the early 19th century, in the aftermath of the Napoleonic War, where you have the climate is bad, there's harvests are poor, there's an economic downturn, and people start to get out. And you get about half a million people leave uh, Ireland at that time in the 1810, 1830, that period, and they go to the United States. And it was those guys who we were dealing with, wasn't the famine generation. And those guys actually were really embedded into the heart of the development of Lowell right the way through into the 1840s, 1850s. You get a famine generation who do come across, but they're coming into actually a well-organised town with uh, an Irish community. By that stage, you're looking at maybe there's about, I think, something like uh, 7,000 Irish living in Lowell. So... The, the impact that the Irish have on that town is quite significant. And it's not necessarily the story that you'll get told and gets repeated about the Irish in America. So that was that was a, a really good site. I really enjoyed that. Loved being, being over there and working, as I say, with the Irish Americans. Um, finally, Too many choices. I think I'm going to, you know, I really enjoyed this. I really did enjoy this dig. It's not a big dig. It's never a really big dig, but it's another one that Eileen and me did. And it sort of ties in with the, the whole Lowell thing. Um, in 2021, um, we had to postpone it. We wanted to do it in 2020, but in 2021, we did an excavation down in, in her home county, County Fermanagh, um, in her home parish, Bow, B O H O, um, at the site of a famine road one of the public works schemes. And we did it to commemorate the 175th anniversary of the, the family. And uh, these have been sort of like, they crisscross across the, the Irish countryside. And they're, some of them are still in use as roads. Some of them are not. Some of them are just abandoned. And they're there as scars on the landscape. Uh, but they've never really been recognised as being in my view, archaeological monuments in their own right, archaeological monuments associated with this episode in Ireland's history. And the, the background to them is as the as the um, the famine got worse. British government, uh, all right, we we'll have to do something. What are we going to do? Road schemes, right? Okay, we'll do these road schemes. Yeah, road schemes. Why road schemes? Why not just use uh, soup kitchens? Oh, well, that didn't work. You just can't be things. You know, this, this, these people all scurrying around, feeding them. You have to do a day's work for this. Right? Okay. And these road schemes, why not? Why road schemes? Why not something, you know, like, oh, I don't know, uh, like building um, factories or railways or something out there? We have to have projects which don't benefit any one individual. They have to be projects which will benefit everybody. So roads are a really good idea. Roads benefit everybody. So they start with us in 1846. Um, and the, the winter of 1846, they've got themselves, their act together, and they've got these road schemes. And the ad Victorian administration of these is fantastic. You know, it's all, everything is charted. Everything is recorded. All the information is there. How many days worked? What equipment, the cost for the equipment, 
number of people in each road scheme that week, the amount of money to be going out. Two things. One, the price that they're given for a day's work is, is nine pence. Normal circumstances, that'll be fine. But because of the famine, food prices are going up. Nine pence isn't enough to feed even one person, let alone a family. And two, these people who are debilitated by the hunger, these people are going out to work in the winter, and it's one of the worst winters on record. It's a disaster. Some, you know, the penny drops, but it doesn't drop until the spring, and they move to soup kitchens, which is what they should have done in the first place. And it just stops. Literally, it just stops. The roads that are going across the countryside, right, abandon them, stop it. We're going to the soup kitchen now. So these roads are just there. They're just abandoned. And there was a stretch of one of these roads in Bow, which was much forgotten about by the local community. And we wanted to investigate the makeup of the road because we know what was been stipulated in Parliament as to how these roads should be constructed. We wanted to check, did that happen on the ground? So we did a section across it. Just a one-week excavation, community excavation, local people involved. We opened up the trench. And it was true. Huge effort had been made to build the foundation layers for the road. But our road had never had its deck put onto it. It was never completed. Normally, it would have a stone deck put onto it. They clearly did all of the work putting driving across the countryside for the, the footings, the foundations for it, but they never actually got around to putting on the, the deck and it was never used, it was just abandoned. What we did with that was, on the basis of the work that we did, we got it put onto the Sites and Monuments record in Northern Ireland. It's the first famine road that is now an archaeological monument. So we're very proud of that as well. That's yeah. That all three of those are fantastic options to uh, to include. It, it did that that final option did get my uh, my mind racing as to um, what the legacy of high speed two railway might be in the landscape and whether that's a future. Um, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, it's exactly the same. It's amazing. <laughs> High-speed rail work. Mm. It's yeah. remarkable how little changes in terms of yeah. government policy over the years. <laughs> yeah. You just yeah. stop it. Yeah, that's it. But um, yeah, thank you, Colin, for sharing those those fantastic examples. Um, as ever, our meandering chat leads on to something that we're envious of, and this could be a specific project or a particular individual or a book or any anything you're you're that's caught your fancy but a piece of work that that's made you wish. Oh, I would have loved to have been involved in that, or I wish I'd seen that. I'm not sure how to say that I'm envious of. I think, you see, whenever I was working with the CAF, you, 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 were, you were with us, Lawrence, you know mm-hmm. this. Um, if you're in charge of something like that there, and we were doing all the, at that time, we were doing all of the work for the government archaeologists, all the field work that they needed. We went out and we did the excavations for them. Well, I couldn't be out on the excavations because I had other duties to do and uh, the management of the unit. So you got used to actually delegating uh, other members of the team to go out and do these excavations. And some of the sites they dug were absolutely fantastic. You know, uh, Brian Sloan uh, going out and doing excavations at Tullahoe, which is like the site associated with the inauguration um, chair associated with the O'Neill's in the medieval period. 
Brian did, did excavations there, came across the drip gully associated with a great big timber and trucks built house. Fantastic sign. Uh, so in some ways I can say, oh, I'm jealous. I wish I had done that. I wish that was a brand had gone out and done that to me. But really, he sort of rise above that. Brian's done it. It's brilliant that he's getting the opportunity to do that. And it's the same with the other guys, you know, like Cormac or Philip or those people I was working with at that time, or in your case, Sarah Gormley, you know, Sarah excavating uh, St. Elizabeth's. I've never been someone who's actually looked at what other people are doing and thought, I wish I was doing that. Because I've always done my own thing. And I've always had plenty of ideas. You know, I always come up with an idea of something that we can do. Tons of ideas. I'm probably, you know, I'm getting to that stage now where I'm not going to have time to get all these ideas completed. But I wouldn't be an envy, I wouldn't be envious of anything. I'm happy with what I've done. I have a good portfolio of work behind me. That is one of the best answers we've ever had, Colin. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not how virtuous I am. It is truthful. I'm not <laughs> yeah. done really good projects. I've been lucky enough to do some good projects. I've got great ideas. I've put me up me, you know, it's low. Lowell began in 2003, 2004. That was whenever I started this idea about what happened to the Irish whenever they went over to the United States. And it was from there that the opportunity arose to do work with UMass. And it was from there that the opportunity arose to actually go out and do the, the, uh, the excavation. But the idea was there. So I've got lots of wee ideas and they're sitting there and the opportunity comes up and then you just take them down off the peg and away we go. That's lovely. Uh, on on the on St Elizabeth's dig, I I'm, I diverge ever so slightly here, but I don't know if you guys ever get this when you meet people that aren't archaeologists. Say you've gone out for dinner somewhere, you've been dragged along, mm-hmm. and um, you meet people. And they say, "What do you do?" And you say, "I'm an archaeologist." And they say, well, "What's the best thing you've ever found?" Do you do you often get though that that question? No, it's a, you do, and what yeah, they're expecting yeah. you to say a gold brooch that was yeah, you know, yeah absolutely. So my. My go-to for this, every and it's, it has been ever since I did it, and it is still my go-to today. The first one I say is uh, Saint Elizabeth's Church, when because there were tens of bodies on that yeah. site that we were excavating, and um, we'd all there were so many we all been assigned our individual um, sort of grave, and I was fortunate enough. I think a lot of the graves were hard to identify, but I was fortunate enough to get one that had a very clear grave cut, and I could find individual pins for a coffin lid. And I remember Straight. going, yeah. "You were talking, you were, you talked me through it, and I, I it was great." And I'd not worked with with human remains before, and. Um, it ended up being about a metre long, so it was a child um, inhumation. And at that point, we'd been been there maybe three weeks and we hadn't found a single item of dating um, from the site. And um, so I fully excavated this, this this whole child and it was quite poignant and I learned how to, the processes of excavating human remains. And for some reason, for some reason, I don't know why, when it came to lifting it, and there's a very methodical way of lifting human remains, I started with the, the individual's left hand. And as I peeled back the finger bones, there was a coin placed underneath the, the child's hands. And it was just, it was that moment that was just, as I say, I, I told you at the beginning, there's this light switch moment um, that 
that makes you realize why you love what you're doing and it was just that that immediate insight into the individual their family the, the last people that would have seen that coin that was placed into the ground with them the unfortunate scenario that led to them being buried at such a young age and um, but also the the value that that coin was going to play in terms of the larger archaeological excavation and the chronology and the, the timing so um yeah i can understand what you mean about lots of great digs that you you, you were sort of overseeing and and passing yeah. on to individuals <laughs> anyway sorry I, I went a bit too deep there <laughs> no, no, you didn't. i mean I, I think the one thing you know and eileen um if she was here and she was talking to you i mean it's the one thing that she's always very very uh keen to to remind the students about is that you're dealing with people and you have to be deeply sensitive with them and you have to remember that there are people and they live their real lives and they died in these circumstances your wee child that you're talking about died the tragedy that caused to the family you have to remember that at all times. And um, there's a responsibility on us to behave in you know, good fashion when we're dealing with the dead. Absolutely. So we've 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 heard of um pride, we've heard there's no envy. Um, so we, we come to our final uh, question. So Derek and I have got a working time machine and we'd love to give you a return ticket. Um you're not allowed to say you don't want to take it. <laughs> okay. No. Um, we just need to know where you'd like to go and why. Um, I think I would like to go back to the late medieval period. Um, I would like two stops. Uh, the first stop would be uh, Dunluce Castle. Around about 1570. And I would like to sneak into the hall and I would like to see Sorley Boy MacDonald, who was the, the Taoiseach, the leader of the, the MacDonalds. Um, and he was formidable. He was a brilliant leader. Um, they'd established themselves, the MacDonalds, as I said, you know, they'd established themselves in North Antrim um, in the, the, the 1500s. The Tudor English did not like this. They didn't like this notion of these Scots being based in uh, North Antrim. And all the way through the second half of the uh, 16th century, they're trying to get rid of them. They're trying to force them out. And the Sorty boy is a really astute leader. I would just like to see what he looked like. Not necessarily even have a conversation with him around the other. Just like to see what Sorty boy McDonald looked like around about that time when he's in his full pride and pump. So that's the first place to stop, Dunluce Castle. Then we're going to go to a tower house, right? And the tower house will, will go maybe a bit, drop in a bit, maybe 1500. Because, again, we've got these buildings that are upstanding, uh, but they're bare, bare walls. There's no very, you know, there's not any examples of the, you know, the furniture, the contemporary furniture, or what they looked like indoors because they were abandoned and uh, all of the, the wooden elements tended, tended to, to go. So maybe one or two have got parts of the roofs on, but by and large, they're, you know, they're not in great condition. You don't know what was going on, basically, unless you've got some hints in the, the masonry, right? Mm. So, for example, if you go up to the top of the building and you go into a room, and you've got a wardrobe and you've got a fireplace. It's a fair bet that actually that's you know that must be the, the, the hall of the house. But 
what's going on in the other rooms? Mm. You know, because this this thing is stacked one level on top of the other level on top of the other level. And because they were privately owned, nobody was writing down. You know, you don't have like a diary of this, the owner of a tower who's telling what was going on every day. And there's no accounts of what was going on in these buildings. The only one that we really have is a guy, an English guy, Luke Gurnham from about 1620. And he tells about going to a house party in a tower house. Uh, and it's brilliant. It's a fantastic night. And the drink is going hell for leather. The minute he steps in, right the way through the dinner, after the dinner, music going, fantastic house party. And then the next morning they all get up and they finish off the, for breakfast, they have the, the leftovers from the, the night before. And then they start drinking again. And they go back down the stairs and get on. You know, the horses are there for them and they ride off. And that's the only real insight we have of what life was like in the tower house. Is this account from 1620? I would like to go on a winter's evening to somewhere like Ard Glass, which is a lovely wee tower house in, in the county down. And I'd like to see what life was like in that tower house on a winter's evening. Just one evening. Just to see what it was like. Because it must have been really snuggy. Unsafe, mm. you know. Yeah. You, the average, what the average person is living in at that time, it's going to be a mud walled cabin or something, and you're inside your stone walled car house, and you've got the fire going, mm -hmm. and maybe the you know you've got the harpist playing tunes, and maybe the evening meal it must have been lovely, but I don't know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe it was dank and grim. And <laughs> Oh, Everybody gets so coughing with TB. And, <laughs> but I'd like to see what life is like in a tower house. That is a, a fantastic answer. And I suspect there's no house party quite like a tower house party. Um, <laughs> I, and and people at you home can't see joke. it. You still my joke. I know I did. Sorry, sorry, Lawrence. Um, I know people at home can't see us, but I've just been delivered a lovely glass of bubbly, which is a, a nice moment to think about tower house parties as I, yes, as I sip on absolutely. a glass of bubbly. Um, thank Should you. Be whiskey. It should be whiskey, but I've run out. I was lamenting via WhatsApp to Lawrence earlier that I've uh, run out of scotch um, or whiskey in general. Um, but thank you so much for all of that column. It's it's for Mark of a uh, a good podcast in my mind, at least. When I look at the clock and suddenly we've had almost an hour of time and I've barely noticed it move by. And also, very selfishly, very few edits I need to worry about. It's going to be a joy to re-listen to this and uh, knock okay. out the podcast in a few weeks' time. So thank you very much, Colin. No um, problem. I should probably... Thank you very much for inviting me along. It's very much. It's been an absolute joy. Um, we look forward to 2024, maybe getting uh, Eileen involved and, yeah, and yeah, follow Eileen. up on some of that. Yeah, um, very much. But as we are at the end of the year, it kind of leaves me to round out the career in ruins of 2023 by just saying thank you to all of our listeners uh we I've, I've said it before and i'll say it again we value each and every one of you um if it weren't for you listening we wouldn't get to have this amazing fun that we do making podcasts i wouldn't get to meet the amazing people i've met throughout the series which has been brilliant column included uh it's just yeah it's been a tremendous year for career and ruins and i can't wait to see what happens in 2024 so happy new year to everyone um please keep listening thank you also to all of our loyal band of patreons uh for supporting the podcast and allowing us to pay our hosting fees and uh just generally keep the podcast chugging along um throughout the year um bringing joy to our lives and hopefully some of yours so happy new year everyone and see you in 2024 happy new year <laughs>